Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 28th, 2013. Tomorrow is Good Friday, Easter on Sunday. It's ought to be interesting. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And it never, well, ceases to amaze me how many people, when definitively shown that Scripture disagrees with the doctrine that they're hearing from their pastor, uh, from a f- their favorite uh, <clears throat> television evangelist, um, you know, whatever their pet doctrines are, uh, when they're definitively shown to be false, um, rather than repent, uh, <laughs> what people do is call me a gunky head. It's it <clears throat> always is kind of interesting. Ah, that's not what I believe. I, I don't believe that. Yeah, it can't be that. So yeah, it can be that. And See, that's the thing. When God's word contradicts your pet doctrines or your favorite whomever, your job is to repent. To repent, ask forgiveness, and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance by believing correctly what God's word says. Now, we are quickly coming to well, what I consider to be... Um, you know, there's there's a little bit of a break every every year. Uh, you know, there's a Christmas break. There's just a slight bit of a breather uh, that comes up for me in uh, in the week after Easter. And here's the reason why: is that uh, I do not, as a uh, as well as a tradition, as a historical precedent here at Fighting for the Faith, do not spend uh, my week uh, the week after Easter reviewing bad sermons. Uh, instead, what I do is I spend the week reviewing nothing but good Easter sermons uh, from pastors who are doing what they're supposed to do, uh, exegeting God's word, proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so the week after Easter, historically, traditionally, has been, well, a, a slightly easier week for me because I don't have to go through all the rigmarole of, um, of, of reviewing bad sermons and explaining to you what went wrong. Now, that being the case, I must throw in a caveat. This year, things are going to be slightly different, and that is is that I fully expect, and I'm hoping I'm wrong, 
I fully expect, and I pray that I'm wrong, um, that on Monday I'm going to have to undo the super whammy of uh, false theology that was taught in the um, <clears throat> the final um, installment of the History Channel miniseries, uh, The Bobble. And uh, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that it's just your garden variety episode just brimming and teeming with false doctrine. I'm, but I, the way it's heading... Um, I'm I'm looking for you know a grand finale you know like you know a heresy wallop that nobody saw coming that kind of thing and I, I boy I hope I'm wrong so you know Monday I hold out at this point uh, the the right I don't even I don't know if that's a way of putting it um, the, let's just put it this way the possibility that we will not be hearing on Monday any good Easter sermons which really depresses me. Um, instead, we might only have the uh, the bobble to deal with, but it depends. And of course, you know, I almost want to put my foot down and refuse to watch it on Easter, but then if I do do that, then I guarantee that my workload is going to be greater on Monday, which is not what I'm looking for. So, um, and then, oh, yeah, by the way, next week, um, while we're doing the good Easter sermons, I need you all to send me uh, your favorite candidates, uh, people that maybe I don't know about or that you want to just highlight and make me aware of, uh, uh, you know, the people that you think should be considered uh, contestants for this year's installment of our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Now, this is a thing that we have done year after year here at Fighting for the Faith. I get flack for that, um, but the reason I do it is to make a point, point. and here's the point. Um, Easter is generally, Easter Sunday, that is generally the easiest day of the year to figure out if you have a pastor who preaches Christ and him crucified for our sins, or if you have a pastor who feels like he's got a more important agenda than to do that. And the Easter sermon will tell you. And uh, there are, in fact, I've probably got a little over a dozen different seeker-driven churches that keeping my eye on because they're all getting ready to launch into brand new sermon series and um <clears throat> these sermon series have nothing to do with Christ and him crucified and raised bodily from the grave for our sins and for our justification and so i'm i'm beginning to think that i may not <clears throat> it the pile this year the the large pile of um, seeker-driven bad sermons may hit an all-time record. We'll see. So if you if you want to, uh, sub, you know, if, over the weekend, you know, you've come, become aware of, or maybe you know, you were invited by friends or family to attend a seeker-driven church, and and to be kind and polite, you went with them to church, and then you heard like the worst sermon that you've ever heard possible for an Easter sermon. If you would like me to consider that, just send me an email at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com and in the subject header, you know, for the email, make it say worst Easter sermon um, contestant. Just say that and, uh, you know, and I I will be saving up and literally screening every single submission that you send my way. So um, everybody will be considered, every one of you. And then what I will do is I will pick what I consider to be, well, see, here's the thing. I mean, the, normally it would be cream of the crop. <laughs> and so instead, like, I think they have a different metaphor here. Uh, so I will, I will spend time previewing all of these, screening them all, and and selecting what I consider to be the worst of the dregs. How's that? 
uh, for this year's uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And also keep this in mind, for in years past, I have been known to give you more than one contestant per day. So uh, the number of sermons that w- I will be kicking back to you, because you, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, will be the ones deciding and voting on uh, this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest like you have in years past. Um, and by the way, the winner does get something. Um, uh, in years past, and in fact, I will continue to this uh, this tradition, uh, whoever wins the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest will be receiving from me a copy of Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity, as well as uh, you know, at least some kind of a document uh, congratulating them on preaching the worst Easter sermon of the year, and uh, by <laughs> and by the way, I should I should let every one of you know that there there's no wagering uh, you know allowed for this particular contest. So if I find out that you you got like an office pool going on at work and stuff like that, you know, well, I'll wag my finger at you and and give you the hairy eyebrow, you know. So that you don't want me to do that. <clears throat> With that. <laughs> Yeah, all of that's just to inform you about what's coming down the pike. With that, today's episode, in fact, let's talk about what we're going to do today and tomorrow. I actually know what I'm going to do for tomorrow. And I have a plan, and I hope I'm able to execute it. But uh, for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, think of it this way. We've got a, well, series of things that I want to uh, bring to your attention and comment on, and there is no theme today. Today is kind of like, well... The cutting room floor, you know, there's, there's, it's a potpourri episode, and yes, I understand potpourri supposedly means stinking pot, which I actually think is appropriate. Um, and uh, so we're going to be looking at just a, a slew of different things in the first hour that that may or may not be connected, and uh, you know, work it out from there. And uh, and then in hour number two, we will be going down to Go Church in Orlando, Florida, and listen to a sermon based upon. Uh, Stephen Furtick's book, Greater, that it, it's not preached by Stephen Furtick. And the whole point of the sermon review is to, is to point out what happens when bad theology you know, moves downstream. How is it popularized? And uh, the, the idea is this, is, and you know, even though I haven't played for you um, my, uh, my lectures on how to not be schnookered, bamboozled, and hoodwinked by you know, religious hucksters and charlatans and snake oil salesmen uh, or your own idolatrous notions, even though I haven't played those lectures for you, I'm going to start to begin to tap into some of the ideas taught in those lectures, you know, so I'm kind of forward thinking at this point, and basically generally point a few things out when it comes to sound biblical hermeneutics. And that's this, is that clear passages always govern unclear. And the one aside from the narcissistic Jesus, which we call Jesus here at Fighting for the Faith, the problem of Jesus in Stephen Furtick's book, Greater, the secondary problem is because of his wrong handling of God's word, and, and a particularly a particular verse where Jesus says, greater things you will do than me, right? Um, that that is now become, in the seeker-driven movement, the core verse that governs their view of Christian sanctification and what it means to be like Jesus. Well, here's the problem, is that clear passages always govern unclear, and passages that are off-topic uh, do not tell us anything regarding 
uh, a particular doctrine. For instance, okay, if uh, I were to uh, go out there and you know and say we're going to study Christology, we're going to study you know the you know the, the finer doctrines regarding who Jesus is, the two natures in Christ, the communication of his attributes, you know things like that. You know, uh, uh, if we were to spend time on that, and then I immediately turn to passages that have to do with Levitical dietary laws to basically demonstrate Christology, you'd all be scratching your head and going, huh? That's off topic. That has nothing to tell us about Christology. You know, I said, oh, no, no, no. You just, you got to understand that this is, this. these are the passages that govern, these dietary laws here should govern our understanding of Jesus. You'd probably all take me outside and back behind the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, backstop and maybe rough me up a little bit um and, and probably for good reason but see that's the thing is is that one of the th- problems that we have in the church today is that people are um quoting passages that have nothing to do with christian sanctification and as a result of it they're literally terrifying uh, the people in the pulpits okay and when it comes to who is this is that in the in the hands of the average seeker driven pastor we get uh, you know these off-topic passages about risk-taking and how you need to be doing greater things than Jesus. And then immediately the pastor will turn around and ask things like, well, are, are, are you doing greater things than Jesus? Well, if not, well, then you might not even be a Christian. You're going, oh, no. Oh, no. What? So you got, you got to go figure out how to live audaciously or something like that. Well, the, the, the fundamental problem there is that the passage that they're citing has nothing to do with Christian sanctification, and those have never been taught in the Christian church as passages that pertain to your sanctification. If we want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit and what Christian sanctification looks like, we actually must go to, get this, um, passages that actually have that as their topic. And so we'll be taking a look at a sermon uh, from uh, from a seeker-driven guy in Orlando, Florida, who is basically trying to popularize Stephen Furtick's misreading and mishandling of God's word and the ramifications that would have for Christian sanctification due to the fact that the, the key verse that people are being bludgeoned with doesn't tell us anything about Christian sanctification. So with all of that, and you now knowing what it is we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, um, I think I, I should do this because I did have uh, an email. Actually, it's not an email, a Facebook comment that I want to pass along here. So, start off with a quick email segment. Over to my uh, Facebook wall, um, I received a comment from a listener by the name of Kim, uh, basically talking about or uh, you know coming up with a theory as to why the changes were made um, with regard to Jesus's raising of Lazarus in the History Channel miniseries, The Bobble. And uh, Kim writes, she says, Chris, you know, last night as I lay upon my bed pondering the great questions of life. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't normally do that when I'm in bed, Kim. Normally, I'm thinking about how long is it going to be before I fall asleep. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My uh, my uh, my bed is not a, a zone for pondering the gr- great questions of life. 
Anyway, it may be a place where I ponder, you know, like the latest loss by my favorite baseball team, uh, the Dodgers. You know, <clears throat> that that may be the place where I'm mulling over, you know, things like that. But never the great questions of life. Great way to start a comment, though. So as she says, as I lay upon my bed pondering the great questions of life, my thoughts rested upon the Lazarus scene in the bobble. I was greatly perplexed as to why they rewrote that event. It would have been just as easy to reenact the scene as originally done than to portray the raising of Lazarus as they cho chose to show it. Yeah, this is a good point, Kim. You're absolutely right. It, I don't think it would have cost them a penny more um, you know, to film it as it is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And then Kim says this. So then the thought occurred to me that it's all about our choices. Now, listen to Kim's point here, because I actually think she's on to something here. Because remember, I pointed out that in the, the Bobble's reenactment of the, of the raising of Lazarus, it was weird for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, Jesus was, went inside the tomb when John's account says he stayed outside. Two, the part, uh, when he gets inside, he actually is preaching to the dead and, you know, and absolutely stone cold, dead, 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 doobie, doobie, dead, so dead he stinks, corpse of, uh, of Lazarus, he's, Jesus is preaching to him. But when you look at the Gospel of John's account where Jesus, those words that Jesus is using in the Bible, that's Jesus talking to Martha, not to Lazarus. So Jesus goes in rather than stays out. He goes in and preaches to um, Lazarus. And so here's Kim's point. She says, so the thought occurred to me that it's all about our choices for these writers. Lazarus had to make the decision for himself to believe that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. And it was actually his belief as opposed to the power of God's word that raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, Kim, that is probably the best explanation that I have received thus far. In fact, so much so that uh, I, I know that you know, when we study other parts of seeker-driven theology in American evangelicalism, our choices are really the big deal. I mean, is it not, you know, Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, and others who basically pictured Jesus up there in heaven, sitting on his throne, twiddling his thumbs? Poor Jesus, he really wants to help you, even though he has dreamy hair and things like that. He really wants to help you, but he can't. You see, his hands are tied. Poor Jesus, oh, he just wants to give you a purpose. Poor Jesus, he really wants to make your life better. I mean, he's looking at you going, oh, if only you knew. If only you knew how much... I can improve, well, your finances, how I can make you happier at work, how I can spice things up in the bedroom, how I can make your children more behaved, how I could, you know, and, and on the list goes on. And, you know, Jesus is just oh, wringing his hands, wanting so badly to help you, but he can't. He can't. Yeah, no, he can't. Poor Jesus, he's absolutely powerless to help you until you make the decision to ask him to let you help you. And, you know, basically, and, and see, nowadays, it's not that you make the decision to ask Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. No, that's not what happens in seeker-driven churches. What you do is you tap Jesus on the shoulder and you ask him to be your life coach. 
You know, see, uh, Jesus, come into my life and be my life coach. I think that's pretty much the right way of doing it. But, Kim, I think you're right. So the reason why Jesus was preaching to Lazarus is because he wanted Lazarus to make the decision as to whether or not he wanted to be raised from the dead. Because, of course, if Jesus were standing outside of Lazarus's tomb, like he did it for real in, in, in what really actually happened, and Jesus then said, Lazarus, come out, well, then Lazarus you know, would have had no choice in the matter. But because Jesus took the time to stoop to Lazarus's level, and poor Lazarus is dead, um, and Jesus stooped to his level and preached to him and kissed him and showed him how much he loves him, Lazarus was able to make the decision, the decision that he wanted to be raised from the dead. <laughs> yeah, I think that absolutely is spot on correct. Okay, moving along. I do not have update music for this. I do not have update music for this. But let me ask you the question. Okay, um, 12 Stone Church, and I think they're in Georgia. I'd have to look. 12 Stone Church has an Easter promo called Easter what does it make you think of? Now, before I play their two, you know, their, their several minute long um, Easter promo, okay? Um, when I ask you, Easter, what does it make you think of? What is like the first thing that comes to your mind? I can tell you the first thing that comes to my mind. Are you ready? Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, dead, and then raised again bodily from the grave. You know, I show up to our, you know, the church that I'm a member of and I teach at. I show up to church on Easter Sunday and I'm going to be regaled with, he is risen. And people are going to say, he is risen indeed. So I, what I think about on about Easter, what it makes me think about is the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, died, was buried, and then on the third day, Easter Sunday, he rose bodily from the grave. That's what... Easter makes me think of. Well, let's take a listen to this Easter promo from 12 Stone Church and, you know, a seeker-driven church and see if, you know, the obvious thing that should be talked about in a church is the thing that's thought of. Here we go. Easter. What does it make you think of? For me, it was chocolate bunnies. Shiny shoes and bow ties. Chocolate bunnies? It was the one day a year where we would get up, dress up, pile into a car and go to church. It was where we were expected to sit up, listen up, and not act like us. One cut of my mother's eyes was all we needed to remind us of the last word she gave us before we slid into that pew. Maybe that's where I got the idea that church, God, Jesus was all about following rules. I mean, stay in the lane, do the right thing. And if you're good, outweighs your bad, you're in. Were you listening to any of the sermons that were preached when your mom drug you to church on Easter? Um, Because <laughs> if you actually had taken the time to listen to the pastor, I'm sure he might have said something to the effect of Jesus died on Friday, rose from the grave on Sunday. And it may have mentioned something like, you know, Jesus's death on the cross was a penal substitutionary sacrifice 
for the forgiveness of our sins, that by Christ's um, sufferings we are reconciled to the Father, that we are transferred from the dominion of darkness into Christ's glorious kingdom through the blood of his cross. You know, things like that. You may have heard those things. Because, you know, so far, you're just basically talking, well, about your experiences rather than the message of Christianity. And so from your experiences, you've come up with the conclusion that Christianity is all about be good, stay in your lane. But if those pastors in the churches that your mom drug you to actually preach Christ and him crucified for our sins on Easter Sundays, you know, and you'd paid attention like your mom told you to, maybe you would have figured out that Christianity's message is not that, oh, be good. Christianity's message is that Christ came to save sinners like me, like you. Maybe that's where I got the idea that just being me wasn't good enough. Somebody said I should give Easter another shot. Just being me isn't good enough. You're right. You were born dead in trespasses and sins. It's not good enough. That maybe I didn't know the whole story. What if this whole faith thing isn't about being good? What if, what if I could just be me? Being you is what got you into the problem that you're in in the first place. You got to understand what you is. Um, you are a sinner. You are sinful by nature. You are born dead in trespasses and sins. The, the, the message of Easter isn't just be you, because when you're being you, you're being sinful. And um, that ain't going to help you when it comes to God. Um, you need to be forgiven. Hi, hi, hi. My best me. The me. Just be the best me. Backing this up. Wow. Uh, in fact, I want to go back a little bit farther here. Um, yeah, let's see here. Being me wasn't good enough. Hang on a second. Here we go. The idea that just being me wasn't good enough. Correct. That's true. Somebody said I should give Easter another shot. That maybe I didn't know the whole story. What if this... It's clear that you don't know the whole story. The whole faith thing isn't about being good. It's about being forgiven. What if... What if I could just be me? <laughs> then you're going to hell. My best... Me. The me... I was created to be. Oh, good luck on that. Um, the me you were created to be. You are aware that since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that you, uh, well, you don't have the image of God anymore. It's broken and basically blighted. And instead, you were now born in the image of Adam. And uh, <clears throat> he is a sinner, and you are a sinner by nature. So Chris, the story of Easter is not about being the me that you were created to be. It's about being forgiven for being the you that you are as a result of you being a direct descendant of Adam and Eve. Yeah, 
Yeah, so um, Easter, 12 Stone Church. Yeah, just learn how to be uh, the best you that you could possibly be. Now, see, the reason I play that, not, not only is that a complete missing of the entire Easter point, but it, it basically tips me off that 12 Stone Church may... Uh, be a church that we want to, well, feature in our sermon contest, not next week, but the week after, for the worst Easter sermon of the year contest that we have here at Fighting for the Faith. Well, let's do this. Let's take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we'll continue with our kind of a potpourri first hour here as we uh, <clears throat> slide into uh, yeah, Good Friday. I'll explain what we'll do on well, Good Friday when we get back. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. <laughs> Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I, I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Granted that or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy.
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't know how to rightly handle God's Word and preach Christ. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons Click on one of them. Uh, one says, join our crew. That's a great way to support us, by the way. What you do when you're signing up to join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it, just $6.95. It's a great way to support us. The more people that join our crew, well, it levels out our giving and makes it so that we can continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you because we have uh, an income stream that we can count on month after month so that we can make budget. It takes the valleys out. Valleys are bad. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. 4- Six zero 
And thank you for your support. Real quick, um, I I didn't get to tell you what I was going to do tomorrow. My hope is that I'll be able to get into the studio early tomorrow, which is Good Friday, and get uh, tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith recorded and posted early. Recorded and posted early. And it's going to be a series of good things. Um, I cannot do bad programming on Good Friday. It would cause my head to blow up. <clears throat> Not because God would punish me, but it would, that was it, I just can't do it. it it's uh, in principle. So what we're going to be doing here is I'm going to be giving a lesson uh, uh, entitled "He Was Numbered with the Transgressors," okay, which is a, a kind of an expository lesson on Luke chapters uh, 22 and 23, which are the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. So starting with uh, Monday, Thursday, all the way through to Christ's death, I'll be uh, uh, giving you a, a basically think of it as a sermon, if you would. Um, and it's called, he was numbered with the transgressions from there. When we're finished with that, I'm going to play a quick, um, a, a very short homily from uh, pastor Sam Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran church in Huntington beach, California entitled the journey is finished. And then we will end up with a, uh, a, a good Friday sermon by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, entitled Seven Words, the, the Seven Words from the Cross. So my hope is to get that recorded and posted early, even though that what that means is there'll be some people who will be listening on the podcast rather than on the uh, Pirate Christian Radio stream. <clears throat> but uh, that that's okay. I think that's an okay thing to do for uh, Good Friday. So uh, with that, we're going to uh, move along, and it's been a while since we've done this kind of an update, so here we go. It's a lot. 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 Like, That's right. It's our Eric Dykstra update music from, well, times past. Yeah, We had hoped that he had turned the corner theologically, but unfortunately he's drifting back again and up to his old ways. Bible twisting. So this is our Eric Dykstra update music, which we've changed the lyrics a little bit to. It's no longer master and servant, it's pastor and servant. Sing along if you know the lyrics. Pastor and servant. Master and servant. We call it Pastor and Servant. We call it Pastor and Servant. Yeah, all right, that's enough of that. <laughs> you get the point. Okay, so Eric Dykstra, um, despite the fact that he for a little while there in the fall, um, you know, discovered the gospel via Tullian Tavidian's uh, uh, books. Um, he, well, he's drifted back uh, theologically into some really bad habits as because I think what he's trying to do is take the biblical gospel, the proper understanding of law and gospel, and syncretize it and meld it with, well, um, uh, Joel Osteen's um stuff from like I declare and things like that. In fact, Eric Dykstra and and his wife Kelly recently uh traveled down to 
Lakewood, and and they 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 were videotaped and and shown with the with Joel Osteen. They're now part of Joel Osteen's network of churches. I, I think maybe if I had to guess, David Crank and Nicole Crank convinced the two of them to go this route, but. Uh, Eric Dykstra, just a, was it, a day ago, yesterday, yeah, yesterday on his blog, posted up a video blog talking about Jesus' resurrection. And in this little video blog from Eric Dykstra, well, he commits the standard error that so many Bible twisters commit when it comes to talking about Jesus' resurrection. I, see if you can spot it, but I'll point it out along the way. Here is Eric Dykstra from what looks like his home. I guess he's uh, filming this video blog uh, either in his home or in his office, but uh, here we go. So it's uh, Easter week, and it got me thinking about the fact that on Friday, Good Friday, Jesus died, and the disciples were brokenhearted. They were discouraged. They were defeated. They were downcast. Saturday wasn't any better. I mean, Friday and Saturday were bad days. And part of Sunday, too. And Jesus rose again, but they didn't even know it yet. But then there came a moment where Jesus stood before them and said, Look, I'm alive. I've conquered death. I've conquered the grave. I'm alive. I'm physically with you. And that's got to be one of the most beautiful, I think the most beautiful event in all of human history was the moment when Christ conquered the grave and rose victorious. Ugh. I'm with him so far. I mean, we're 49 seconds into this video blog and it's like, well, what could possibly be wrong with that? <clears throat> well, we <laughs> continue. Got me thinking about my life and the life of so many of my family and friends. Got you thinking about what? Got you thinking about your life. What exactly do you mean by that? Many of us go through seasons that feel like death. Oh, yeah. Are you going through a season that feels like death? Yeah, Eric, uh, here's the problem. Um, <clears throat> last time I checked, every one of us actually doesn't have to worry about any seasons of death. Uh, death is coming for us. Um, the wages of sin is death. It's not going to be a season. It's going to be a for real thing. It's not going to be an allegory or a metaphor. Um, it's going to be the the real deal. You know, there, there's a day coming if Christ doesn't return first where I'm going to stop breathing. My body is going to assume room temperature and begin to decompose. Um, and if Christ continues to tarry, then this carcass of mine is going to cease to be, and all that will be left are, well, well, that would be dust and bones. It's just what happens to sinners. They die. And so the hope that we have, at least biblically, when the scriptures point us to the resurrection, is the hope because we are in Christ, we too will be raised from the grave, not allegorically, not metaphorically, but for real, okay? And so this is like a complete biffing, missing of the point regarding Jesus' resurrection. Let's see where he goes with this. We go through moments, we go through seasons. Some of it's way longer than three days. Where it just feels like everything has died, our dreams have died. Oh, no. <laughs> have your dreams died? Oh, this is terrible. Did you consider having a funeral for your dreams? It might help. We're living in discouragement, we're living in despair, we're living in defeat. But 
the good news is is that if Christ conquered the grave, he's going to conquer our stuff too. It's just a season you're going through. Really, where in the Bible does it say that because Jesus conquered the grave, that... Um, that if my dreams have died, that it's just a season, and he's gonna he's gonna fix that stuff, so that he's going to raise again from the allegorical metaphorical grave my dead dreams. I don't see those passages in there. This is a complete tortured wrong um, application, if you would, of the biblical uh, account of Christ's resurrection. There are theological implications, but nowhere in scripture does it say because Jesus rose bodily from the grave, therefore Christ is going to resurrect your dreams. Seasons come and seasons go. Just like Jesus died and rose again, your life is going to rise again. If you just continue to follow him and trust him by life, it sounds like you're talking about, well, if I'm experiencing a season of depression, if it, things aren't exactly going, my, my, the, I'll experience a season of resurrection in my life because I've been going through a season of death. That is not what the resurrection is about. That's the good news. That's the hope of Easter. No, it's not. This is a pipe dream. That when we follow our good, resurrected Savior, that he resurrects our life. That would be literally, yes, Jesus is going to literally raise us from the grave, for real. The only place the path of Jesus goes is through death to resurrection. So if you're going through the death part, know that resurrection's on its way. Man, serious. Um, how much did you pay for your seminary degree? Um, because you may want to see if you can get a refund. That you've already experienced the worst, and the future is going to be great. There's going to be a moment when all of a sudden you're going to look around and go, I can't believe it's this good. What are you talking, you're not actually talking about our real bodily resurrections from the grave, Eric. And by the way, um, can I just point out the obvious? You look like you've aged quite a few years in the past couple of years. You're looking old. Um, so, I mean, how is it possible that things are just going to get better? I mean, at the rate you're going, I mean, you're going to, well, you're going to hit your senior years looking like a senior. Is, is that what you mean? You know, the, the, the things are great. Yeah, no, you're, you're looking old. Is that gray hair I'm seeing there in the light in your room? I mean, looks to me like you're heading towards your real grave. That's the story of the Christian life. That's the story of... Many of my friends, that's the story of my life. God is good, and when we stay with him, we do see victory. You're going to see a resurrection. You just Yeah, I agree. I'm going to see a resurrection. I will see myself raised from the grave on the last day. For sure. Between now and my death here um, in, in time and space, no guarantee that things are going to be a, well sunny, a bed of roses, or anything like that. It's That's not what's promised us. Christ promises suffering, persecution, that he even promises that if you trust in him, that uh, it may cause you to lose your marriage. It may cause family to turn against you, for people to slander you. It may cost you a lot. So this side of Christ's return, we're not promised a bed of roses. Hardship? Yeah. The victory comes when Christ returns. Stay faithful and watch what God does. God bless you. Happy Easter. I hope to see you at one of our Easter services. 
I guarantee you won't. Um, yeah, and I hope that uh, you know anybody that wants to go to Easter services at the Crossing Church that you would dissuade them regarding that decision. Moving along, last segment here before we go to our second break. From the Israel IsraelNationalNews.com, IsraelNationalNews.com, Arutz Sheva. The headline reads, Temple Groups Practice Passover Sacrifice. Temple Groups Practice Passover Sacrifice. Um, this one is disturbing to me. Okay? Um, the, the, basically, um, the, the subheading of this is, uh, Jewish Groups Prepare for the Third Temple with a Sample Sacrifice for Passover. Jewish groups prepare for the third temple with a sample sacrifice for the Passover. Now, here's the problem theologically with this, is that um, it's not a good thing that uh, they're planning to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The reason is this, is that Christ is the temple. And the Passover itself is type and shadow that points us to Jesus. As the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the world is getting ready at this point for some time in the not-too-distant future for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the reason this is not a good thing is because the temple itself pointed us to Jesus. You know, our sins and the sins of uh, ancient Israel were never forgiven by the blood of rams and goats and things like that. But all of our, all of us, our sins are forgiven by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So it's not the blood of these animals, but it's the blood of Christ that matters. And so what happens here at this uh, IsraelNationalNews.com um, story, they actually have um, video, a YouTube video of uh, this, these groups in uh, this group in Jerusalem taking a lamb and literally ritualistically sacrificing it in, you know, basically in anticipation. This is a sample sacrifice to get you ready for uh, the third temple. In fact, let me play a little bit of the audio from the video. Yeah, now what you don't see is that they show a guy literally holding down a lamb and slitting its throat. And now they're blowing trumpets. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not in English. But uh, the practice, let me read from the story. The practice sacrifice has been held annually for the past several years. This year, organizers were unpleasantly surprised by a veto from Israel's veterinary services, uh, which refused to authorize the event. Organizers took the matter to court and were able to quickly get a ruling permitting the ritual. Various groups involved in the event were represented by Rabbi Yehuda Glick, uh, who told Arut Shavah, 
that the ritual was carried out with as much biblical accuracy as possible. Quote, we took the goat as the Torah commands. We had an altar built like the real one and a cooking pit built according to uh, halakha, Jewish law, he said. And we slaughtered the goat with uh, Levim singing in priestly clothing, just like the real Passover sacrifice. Levim are Jews uh, belonging to the uh, biblical tribe of uh, Levi, whose members took part in temple services. The ritual was emotionally moving, Rabbi Glick reported. The symbolism of standing opposite the Temple Mount and preparing for the real Passover sacrifice was without a doubt a special moment. So, yeah, keep in mind that uh, you know Easter and the Passover are inextricably linked. But while all this is going on um, out there in, in uh, Israel... Um, they're getting ready to rebuild the the uh, the temple, and this is not good. This is not good at all. And uh, you know, bringing back the uh, the uh, sacrificial system of sacrificing animals, um, that those were type and shadow. And uh, and there's I know there's a lot of Christians in evangelicalism who would look to this thing and say, "Oh, this is great. We need to support them in this." Theologically, this is not good. This is completely contrary to uh, uh, to good sound theology and I think would be a hindrance to the actual thing needed and that is is that uh, that uh, people who are caught up in Judaism need to repent and trust Jesus Christ Yeshua as Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of his sins and his sacrifice he is our Passover lamb and sacrificing those animals and bringing all of that back well, Theologically, the only thing I can say to that is that is no bueno. Makes me wonder, are we getting closer to the time when Christ is going to return? Things like this make me scratch my head and think, maybe. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon, bad sermon, from Go Church in Orlando, Florida, based upon Stephen Furtick's book, Greater. And it's a false teaching regarding Christian sanctification. Rather than pointing out the narcissistic eisegesis, we're going to point out the bad hermeneutics by wrongly ordering passages and making them about sanctification when they're not. Stay tuned. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. 
That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Going to listen to what happens when Stephen Furtick's bad teaching moves downstream and is preached in other people's churches. You're going to hear it popularized. But there's a primary problem hermeneutically here, and that is, is that we're taking a text that isn't about sanctification and making it the clobber text for sanctification. I'll explain here in a minute. Let's do this first. Hey, oh. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Go Church, Orlando, Florida, Barry Rice presiding. The name of said sermon is entitled Greater, What Will You Do? Now, as I've been talking about throughout the program today, here's the basic idea, is that when it comes to sound biblical doctrine and theology, you got to stay on topic and clear passages govern unclear. If I were to do, like I've pointed out, you know, let's say I wanted to teach you about the doctrine of the Trinity... And rather than taking you to the passages that discuss how the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and how the uh, the three persons make up the one God because there's only one God, rather than take you to those passages, I instead took you to Moses' parting of the Red Sea and um, tried to basically make that the governing passage when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, you can't do that. It's off 
topic. Well, so is it when you go and you take that passage where Jesus says, greater things you will do than these, you know, to his disciples, um, and basically say, this is the thing that governs whether or not you're really living the Christian life. Well, that passage is actually not talking about Christian sanctification, and that's one of the reasons why Stephen Furtick's book, Greater, falls flat. Um, Not only does he engage in narcissistic eisegesis, reading himself into Old Testament books, reading you and I into them, and like the story of Elijah and other things, but we've got a false passage now uh, basically clobbering Christians over the head and making them feel like they're not pleasing to God because they're not out there, well, you know, doing greater things than Jesus did. So... As you're going to find out, that's not the passage. You know, that passage has nothing to say regarding our sanctification. So, without any further ado, let me kill the music here. Here is Barry Rice and his sermon entitled "Greater: What Will You Do?" Here we go. Good morning, Go Church. How you doing? Hey, it's been awesome to have you during this series uh, called "Greater." Man. I thank you for your emails. I thank you for what you posted on Facebook and, and what God is doing in your life. I'm very, very excited. Uh, in your worship program, you're going to find a card, just uh, a blank card with lines on it. And this is what I want you to do with that today. You need to do it today because I believe uh, uh, it's going to be fresh and I believe it's going to be uh, a part of what God wants to do. I want you to fill out that card with this information, what God did in my life and in my heart during the series. And if you are here for the very first time, uh, you don't have to fill out the card. Or you can fill out the card with what God said to you today. It's your choice. It's up to you. You don't have to do that. In the next 50 minutes... Fill out the card with what God said to me today? Weird. Minutes. We're going to experience God's word. We're going to hear how God really used this man, Elisha. And we're going to come to a conclusion with this series called Greater. And, and after that, we're going to partake in communion. Our church, every uh, last Sunday of the month, we partake of communion. And so I just want to give you a heads up on that and remind you that we're doing that today so that you could put, again, prepare your heart. Um, I want to give a shout out real quick to all those who play softball at Go Church. Uh, congratulations. I heard you got second in the tournament this weekend. Let's give them a big hand. Come on now. Uh, Go Church softball is becoming pretty good. I, I'm excited about that. And, and it's really like a life group. They, uh, they pray together, they come together, and, and it's pretty much every Friday night. And uh, uh, they have uh, seasons. I, I think there's two seasons, one in the spring, one in the fall. And, and they go to tournaments every once in a while. So that's, that's just a lot of So if you go to Go Church, you can be part of a softball team, and that could be your life group. Okay. A fun fellowship and the wives come and, and support and so forth. You know, I heard the story once of how they train elephants. You know, they are one of the biggest. And by the way, with the, uh, the, the transition, the segue now into how they train elephants, this supposedly is now laying foundation for what's going to become the primary point of this message. 
Uh, by the way, this uh, little bit about how they train elephants is not found in the Bible. Animals in nature. And can you imagine the destruction that an elephant could do? I mean, just with the body weight, leaning up against stuff and, and running through stuff. And, and, you know, I was thinking about how does circuses, you know, control these huge animals? Obviously, the trainers in, in the circus are, are the best trainers in the world for animals. And, and they told me that they get an elephant when it's a baby. And they take and they, they put a stub in the ground. They nail it down in the ground and they take a chain and they, they tie the baby elephant's foot to the chain. And because the elephant's a baby, the baby elephant cannot break that chain and, and it, uh, cannot pull that stub out of the ground. And so many times you see these huge elephants with a chain around their ankle and tied to a little stub in the ground. And they learned that they couldn't break that as a child, as a little baby elephant. And it's gone throughout life with them. And because they learned as a baby or as a child that they couldn't pull that stub up, they couldn't break it, that when they get to tons of weight... And when they get so powerful that they could just rip it out of the ground anytime that they want to or, or break the chain, they have been trained to think about that, that, that chain that they can't break it. Well, through this series, we're asking God to break the chains. We're asking God to, the things that we have believed when we were a child or the things that were said to us that maybe was poison. So we're asking God to break chains, you know, because somebody may have said something to you negative that's keeping you from experiencing your full potential. This is not the chains that Christ necessarily breaks. Um, We're born dead in trespasses and sins under the dominion of darkness. Christ breaks the chains of sin, death, the devil, and transfers us into the kingdom of the Son of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden now you can live your dreams and stuff. And you swallowed. And it's been something that has held you back for all of your adulthood. Maybe it was someone that, that was teasing you and said that you were stupid or said that you were ugly, which is such horrible words. So the big problem that Jesus came to solve was... Those people who had their feelings hurt by a school bully? Somebody who called you ugly? Now, I granted, yeah, that those kinds of words hurt and they're hurtful, but I think those are a symptom of the real problem that Jesus came to solve. And that is, is the sin problem. The reason why people say things like, you're ugly or you're stupid, is because they're sinners. And you know what? You're a sinner too. So Jesus Christ died for our sins, okay? Not necessarily to set us free from, from people who've called us gunky heads. And, and because they said that to you, Satan just kind of took that and gave it to you as your identity. So many things that are not true. 
like this, what you just said, where in the Bible does it say that Satan gave us our identity through people who said that we're gunky heads or things like that? I don't see that in the Bible. And I wonder this morning if we are kind of like that adult elephant rocking back and forth, putting the weight on one leg, putting the weight on the other set of legs. And we have this chain that's going down to the ground that we could rip up at any moment. But we have this thing holding us back. And and what we don't realize, what we don't realize is that those chains could be broken immediately and we could be set free immediately and we could go to a whole nother level and a whole nother place in our Yeah, whole nother level. That would be uh, Ed Young's favorite phrase. Our life. If we would just believe. See, that's the difference. It's the faith and the belief and and believing that something great, greater could happen in your life. See, the key verses for this series has been John 14, 12. Okay, let's take a look at it. John 14, 12. Okay. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical hermeneutics. They are context, context, and context. And I want to drill down a little deeper. We're going to take a look at the topic that's at hand. Okay, Is the topic that's being discussed here Christian sanctification? There are biblical passages that discuss Christian sanctification. Okay, What it is, what it means to live out your faith. How we, in response to what Christ has done for us in the gospel, how we then offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, things like that, how we bear fruit uh, in keeping with the Spirit and keeping with repentance. There are clear passages that describe and prescribe uh, ideas and concepts regarding Christian sanctification. Let's take a look and see if John fourteen twelve is a passage that is discussing and dealing with the topic of Christian sanctification, whereby if you're disobeying it, you're not really saved or you're not really a Christian or you're not really sanctified as a Christian. So uh, let me set this up for you. This is a good text for us for today because it's Monday, Thursday. John 14, 1 is in the upper room during the uh, Last Supper. Jesus says, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep uh, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, so I've, I've kept going in context. Now, so I read all the way down to verse 17. The verse in question, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, uh, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Now, is this the mark of Christian sanctification, that you do greater works than Jesus? Not necessarily. What is being meant here? I mean, um, are you raising the dead? I'm not. Um, are you healing the sick? No. Um, are you uh, giving sight to the blind? Hardly. Um, are you uh, casting out demons and giving voice to the mute? No. Um, yeah, so uh, what's going on here? Um, should we assume, therefore, because you're not doing greater things than these? Then that, that well, you're not a Christian then. You're just being held back by limiting thoughts and stuff like that. And no, that's not what's being referred to here. And if you read good commentaries on this passage, what they will point you to is the book of Acts as the very fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, when we're talking about greater things, we're not talking about the physical miracles. We're talking about the thousands upon thousands of people who've been brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You know, when Jesus is crucified, you know, he, he, those who believe in him are really down to just a, a handful of people and they were scattered. Okay. The, the mass crowds that followed Jesus around dwindled when Jesus, you know, began preaching hard sayings. Okay. And so what's really referring to here is, is that, you know, when it comes to Jesus's earthly ministry here, when all is said and done, he's got a core group of not thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers. He's got a core group of 12. One of them betrayed him, but they replaced him. And there were about 500 believers in all, 500 people whom Jesus appeared to after his death. Okay. But then these people scatter. And, you know, they basically take the gospel throughout the world and, the, and it's beginning to bear fruit all over the world. Okay, so the greater works that Jesus is referring to, it has to do with the spread of the gospel, of people being brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I mean, I would point to something like the, what the Apostle Paul, who spent several years in the city of Ephesus, preaching day after day in the hall of Tyrannus and proclaiming Christ, how that then literally caused people to, you know, well, God raised people from the dead spiritually, regenerated them. And then what happened is, is that, uh, you know, is that it, it was so much of an impact that literally the people who were selling silver shrines to Artemis at, one, at the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, um, they began to feel the pinch Sales were slumping, and they were, you know, it's, it's, that's the things that Jesus is referring to. Now, the question then is, is that, is, well, if you're not doing the same thing as Paul, are you sinning? Well, no, that's not the hallmark of Christian sanctification, okay? That's not what's being said here, 
Okay, If you want to look at the passages that discuss Christian sanctification, you must look at those things that are on that topic. And so just a good Bible commentary or a good um, a, a good study Bible will help you understand what is meant here in uh, John fourteen twelve when it says greater things you will do. We continue. And the, the, the verse reads like this, very truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. And when he says very truly I say to you, he's saying this is a truth that's very, very important. I mean what I say, and if you'll stand on this truth, it will build your faith. And he says, very truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. What what does that mean? If you're a child of God and you have put your belief in Jesus, the things that Jesus did while he was on earth, we can do. We can experience it. We can see lives changed. We can do great and awesome things. But listen to this. Doing things that Jesus did would be great and awesome. But listen what he says. And they, me and you, the disciples, those who follow Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus, they will do what? Say it with me. That words that are in red. They will do Even greater things, oh my goodness, than these. Right there, Jesus is saying, the spokesman that is God and and is the spokesman for God. He's saying to you and I, we could do greater things. So let me ask you, are you experiencing greater things in your life right now and through this series Have you started to take the baby steps of faith to move forward? So are you taking the baby steps of faith so that you can do greater things? Because if you're not, well, you're you're not really being a Christian. And as we enter into this last week of the series, I couldn't get off my mind that last statement. Why can we do the things that Jesus did? I'm not special. Why why is he telling me that I could do even greater things than Jesus did? Really? Me? Yes. Us. You. Me. He says very plainly in this verse, why? Jesus says, because I am going to the Father. Why does that make a difference? Jesus, okay, you're going to die. You're going to be put in a grave. You're going to be mutilated on a cross and and you're going to resurrect from the grave and you're going to go to the Father. What difference does that make to me? Why is that going to allow me to do greater things? Let me tell you why. And I'm asking you to fill in the blank. It's because Jesus is going to heaven and he's standing beside the father as our advocate. Fill in that blank. Well, what does that mean? He's there for your defense. Every time that we've blown it, Every time that we argue with our wife on the way to church, 
And every time we get in the flesh because of the kids, every time that we, we, we mess up and we blow it, we have someone that is standing there at the father's uh, throne and he's saying, it's, it's this. I died for them. This crown that I wore, this spear in my side, these stripes on my back, it was for them. He's getting dangerously close to actually preaching the biblical gospel. See how long that persists. We have this person, this advocate, this God at the side of the Father saying, this is your child. And and I promised them on your behalf that they would do greater things. He is advocating for us to the Father. He is for us, not against us. You didn't hear me. Apparently, they're not um, not getting the appropriate applause lines. Seriously, God is not looking to zap you from heaven. He's not looking to judge you. He doesn't want to put curses on you. Is is that why you're tiptoeing through the tulips? That's why you do what you do because, man, I don't want the curses of God. God wants you as his child. God, as his child, he wants to bless you and allow greater things to happen in your life. And he wants us to experience that. More than anything, he wants us day by day to grow deeper in our relationship with him. And see, if we really get this serious, See, the greater things is the depth of our relationship with God and our understanding of him. He is the greater thing. So us coming closer to him and us having the power that he offers and us understanding that purpose that he has for our life. Uh, So the greater thing is us understanding a, a purpose that God has for our life. I can tell you it's not to be chained our past and we know that in the life of Elisha that when he was called by that incredible prophet Elijah the prophet that I guess he was so close to God and and God just loved him so much God sent a chariot and horses of fire to sweep Elijah up in a whirlwind and Elijah didn't have to die Elijah went to heaven that way. I mean, that just blows my mind. And so we look at the baby steps that Elijah takes and Elisha took. And and we understand that when Elijah came, Elisha was working in the field. He was working uh, with tw- uh, 11 other people. He was a 12th person and Elijah was in charge of this field and, and the 12 of them would walk behind oxen with a plow. That's what he... Now, just real quick, chronologically, story of Elijah and Elisha precedes Jesus' words in uh, John 14 by what, six, seven, eight hundred years so Jesus 
800 years, give or take a few, says, I'm going to the Father and greater things you will do. And so shouldn't he be pointing us to, if he wants to make uh, the point as to how this is fulfilled, he should go forward chronologically to the Acts of the Apostles, not backwards hundreds of years to the story of Elijah and Elisha. It doesn't make any sense. This is hermeneutical nonsense, what he's doing. What he did, he was a farmer. He was just a farmer. And one day, the the greatest prophet in all of Israel comes and he takes his mantle or his cloak that kind of typified him as the prophet. And he takes it off. Elijah takes it off and puts it on Elisha. How humbling. Why in the world would Elijah pick a guy out of the field? Because God told him to. And that's... Uh, You are aware that way back then, they didn't have factories. They didn't have corporations with cubicles. um, That the vast majority of folk lived out on the land and they were farmers. That was common. Um, What was uncommon is people living in cities and being merchants and things like that. Man, so now notice what he said. Why would he pick a farmer? You know, some guy out there plowing and stuff like that. As if somehow, you know, that's such a lowly and terrible thing to be doing. Well, that's what the majority of folk did back then. How Elijah started. And the first baby step that he took... Because he had choices. The first baby step that he took, fill in the blank, he surrendered to that call. Can I tell you this morning, as you're filling in that blank, that... So notice, you know, so Elijah surrendered, so you got to do this. That's step number one. Okay, and here's another hermeneutical principle, okay, and that's this, is that historical narratives must have their theology laid out for us in a clear passage that didactically teaches the theology. For instance, okay, the clearest example of this is the fact that Jesus, when he was bleeding, suffering, and dying on the cross, you know, it, when the, the historical account is narrated to us without any theology whatsoever, we cannot just assume that we understand what theologically was taking place. We need a clear text to spell that out for us, okay? Which is why we have Isaiah 53, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, and a whole host of other uh, passages that clearly give us the theology of the historical event. So here's what is happening is is that the, right now I mean we're getting a theology regarding the story of the calling of Elisha but this isn't a theology that's laid out in a clear didactic text this is somebody imposing their theology on the historical narrative where no theology is given so um what can what should we do with this theology that's being told to us we should reject it Okay, unless you can point me to a clear didactic text that spells out the theology of the historical narrative taking place here, um, chances are whatever theology somebody is giving you um, is, well, going to be tortured, innovative, speculative, and not actually what the Bible is teaching. Elijah surrendered to the call that you have a call on your life. 
No, no, Pastor. I don't have a call. Only pastors are called. Um, so I should assume that because Elisha had a call, that I have a calling on my life. That's not what this text is saying. Again, where is a clear didactic text giving us the theology of this historical narrative? Really? Really? All throughout the Word of God, there's people like Esther. Was she a pastor? And yet her life, that she was told, for such a time as this, God has put you into a position of being queen so that so many lives can be saved. Each one of you out there, you are called to do something great and greater for God. But do you know that calling? Why don't you know it? Can I, can I just be honest with you? Um, what are you talking about? If I have a greater calling, what are you talking about? Shouldn't I be looking at God's word? See, now we're sneaking in direct revelation. Someone told me this a couple of years ago. And, and they were talking, why don't we hear from God? Why don't we hear from God? Why, why, why do people talk about hearing from God? I don't hear from God. And, and the speaker said, we live at about 25 to 3,000 RPMs. We're always going. We're always going from this place to this place. We're always taking the kids here to there. We're always uh, writing this proposal, doing this thing. And, and we never stop. And we don't spend the time seeking God that we should. And this is what he said. He says, God speaks. At 500 RPMs. Uh, who's so the, he was saying, who's this guy and why should I believe him? Where does the Bible say God speaks at 500 RPMs? And you've got to cool your jets. You've got to step back. And you've got to get some deliberate alone time with God to hear him. And I just encourage you to do that. I encourage you to, to ask God, what is my calling? Here's something I'll tell you. If you don't realize you have a calling, and if you're not walking within that calling, and you're not surrendered to that calling, it says in the Bible that you're like a ship tossed to and fro, that that you're even... Wait, wait, wait a second. If I am not surrendered to the calling, I'm like a ship tossed to and fro. Let's check the Bible and see what it says regarding that. See if that's talking about somebody who's not surrendered to the direct revelatory calling that God has on their life to do something greater. This passage, by the way, can be found in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll start at verse 11. Here's what it says. And the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
In other words, the tossing to and fro part here has nothing to do with you surrendering to some purpose that God wants to reveal in your life. You're not, if you don't want to be tossed to and fro, well, it's because you're brought up in sound doctrine and teaching because you have faithful teachers and pastors who are shepherding you in the faith and in God's word so that you're not like an immature infant tossed here and there by every wind of, of basically false doctrine. That's what that passage is referring to, not you being tossed to and fro because you haven't surrendered to a visionary purpose for your life. Barry's not rightly handling God's word. You're not even uh, being on a, a path and you're not on a, a, a chart of directions on the map that you're just kind of sitting in the water and allowing the water to take you wherever it wants to. God has a purpose and he has a plan for you and he has a road, it's called a narrow path, that he wants you to walk on with him. And he has a destiny from you and it's called greater things. So something, that a baby step or small step that Elijah took, and most of the time you're, you're like me. Well, it's 2013, January 5th. I've got to do this resolution. I'm going to lose weight, so I stop eating. Or I do something drastic, and it's not sustainable. I take 20 huge steps, and I can't sustain it. I'm going to work out. I'm going to work out, and I work out so hard for a couple times that I can't move to go back to the gym. Has anybody experienced that with me? Come on, somebody tell me you understand what I'm talking about. I mean, you're walking like a mummy, you know? A little step here, a little step there, taking baby steps that are sustainable over time will get you to the greater place and the greater things. It's being on a a life plan versus a plan for just today. And so Elijah... He put on the cloak, he accepted his call, and he surrendered to it. Number two, as as I have preached in this series, he burned the plow, or if you would, the bridge, so he could not go back. He He crossed over from one glacier to the next, and there's only one bridge. Uh, where in the Bible does it say that you've got to burn your plows? Answer, it doesn't. Just because Elisha burned his plows isn't some kind of necessary step then that you must follow in order to, well, be a Christian and experience greater things. This isn't the theology taught in Scripture. This is a foreign alien theology that has as its origin the mind of Stephen Furtick, not the written word of God. And it's being literally forced on this text narcissistically that you can go back to that place. And what he did, he burnt the bridge. He burnt uh, the plow so he couldn't go back. And I want to know, did you do that? No, I don't own any plows. And it's illegal to burn things except on burn days here in Indiana. I don't want to run afoul of the local ordinances regarding fire. Did you put your past behind you? 
Have you stepped out in faith? Because that's what Elisha did. He burned the plow and he had a wholehearted commitment to following the prophet. Number three, in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says this. The kings were together and they're about to go to war. And they were dehydrated and they were in the desert. They were tired. They were dehydrated. They don't have any more water. And now the kings want to find someone to help them that's a prophet. But in this passage, it says something very specific about Elisha. Yeah, and let me give you just a real quick thumbnail sketch as to how you know this is a bad interpretation of Scripture. Uh, if you listened uh, t- during the break, I played our Max Holiday sketch uh, from uh, Rex Quando, uh, his, you know, basically pitching his new book, Greater Than or Equal To. And uh, Rex Quando taunts Stephen Furtick because, you know, basically saying Stephen Furtick is, well, you know, he's, he's a pansy. He's, he's really not uh, manly at all because he's not doing the full counsel of the Word of God because. Uh, Rex Quando, in his book, Greater Than or Equal To, looks at some of the other prophets given to us in the Old Testament. And, you know, uh, for, for instance, Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel was commanded by God to bake bread over, well, excrement. And, well, Furtick doesn't do that. John the Baptist, well, he ate locusts and wild honey. So are you are you eating your locust and wild honey? And then another prophet, I think it was Hosea, God commanded him to uh, marry a prostitute. So have you married your prostitute? You, you see, this is no way to read scripture. You don't allegorize it, narcissistically eisegete it, and then make it about you, something you know, some step that you've got to take in your life, because otherwise, you know, you've got to you've got to do if you do this with Elisha and select stories of, of Elisha, well you've if you're gonna be consistent, you've got to do it with all the prophets. Every single one of them and all their quirkiness. Isaiah himself, he prophesied full on naked, um, you know, in the nude for I think the better part of a year. Have you prophesied naked? Believe me, you'd be arrested if you tried. You see, this is no way to read scripture. This is just a formula for complete and utter chaos. Okay? And if you were consistent, well, then you'd be consistent with all of the quirky things that the prophets did. And that's not what God is calling you to do at all. It says, but Jehoshaphat asks, is there no prophet of the Lord here? Through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. In your Bible, you can underline pour water on the hands of Elijah. Isn't that significant? I mean, I am called to be the next prophet. I have been given the cloak. I I have the mantle. And yet he's known for being the water boy. Hopefully you haven't seen that movie, Water Boy. But that's what he was. He was the water boy for this prophet. He would pour water on his hands. And I- uh, you are aware that in the Gospel of John, not too far from uh, chapter 14, verse 12, 
Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Uh Uh-huh. Think about it. I was thinking about that this week. When, When you have a calling and you understand that calling and you surrender to that calling, there is no task that's too small because you get the big picture. If the man of God, the prophet of God that I'm following, that I'm going to walk in his shoes after he's done, if he needs some water poured on his hands, well, I'm going to be the one to do it because I want to learn as much as I can and I want to serve the man of God. And so if you would fill in the blank, Elijah learned to serve well. I can't explain it, but I know it's true. If you have not learned the principle of serving well under someone, you are not going to be a good leader over top of someone. You must first. Who says that God's calling everybody to be leaders? If everyone's called to be a leader, who are going to be their followers? This is absurd. Learn to be loyal. You must first learn to do the hard work and the tedious things and and the things that just doesn't make sense. You've got to scrub the toilets. You've got to pick up the paper and you've got to pour the water on, on the prophet's hands so that one day you will be qualified to be the prophet of God. You will be qualified to go to the greater things. So I've got to pour water on the prophet's hand so I'm qualified. Where does it say that he was qualified to go to greater things because he poured water on the prophet's hands? There's no text that says this. It takes doing the small things and having a great attitude with the small things. And and I I, I can tell you that, that wives that work in the home, that, that does the laundry for the kids that does the cleaning that nobody appreciates, that cooks the meals. So, the, the, okay, so if that's you, well, you're, you're now making it so that you're qualified to do greater things. Can I point something out here? If you would read the tail end of like the epistles, like most of them, especially the Pauline epistles, the be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good father, be a good mother, be a good son or daughter or you know a good slave these are the ways in which christians are called to do good works these are the very good works that christ has called us to in other words those are the greater things but apparently no no if you know you're doing the mundane well good news that you're you're now qualifying yourself for greater and a lot of them do that as a single mom. And a lot of them do that even when they have a job. They do all that work. And you feel like hey, as soon as you're over here, you're cleaning this up. The kids have messed something else up. And you go over here and you clean this up. And right behind you, the kids messed up what you just cleaned. Is there anybody out there that feels that way? Kayla, why are you raising your hand? You're the one that's, no, I'm just teasing. You gotta have the vision of the greater that you're building an environment and a nest, a place 
for your children to become the greatest people on earth. And it's because of you doing what you're doing. And it's because of what you're building. You got to have the vision. I'm not just doing this because it's for my health. How many times have I ever heard somebody say, am I doing this for my health? See, it's all in perspective, isn't it? And Elijah had the perspective. I'll just do whatever it takes. I'll just do whatever it takes. And you know what? Leaders appreciate those people with that type of attitude. And you know what leaders look at and they see when someone has that type of attitude? That's someone I can trust. That's someone I could put in in give them more responsibility because if if they are willing to to be faithful in the little things, as God said, I'm going to put you in charge of greater things and, and great will be your reward. Let me ask you this morning. Are you faithful with the little things that God has given you? Or is everything you, you do is, is for show? You, you only do things great when people are watching? Or you're going to get some accolade or some press from it? I want us to look this morning at 2 Kings chapter 2. And we're going to read a lot of verses here. And I just ask that you would just be patient with me because there's something that is random here that, that it reoccurs. And it's a principle that I want us to see in the life of Elijah as we're bringing this thing to a close. In 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 1, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elijah were on their way from Gilgad. Elijah said to Elijah, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they, both of them, went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elijah and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you? Elijah was like, yes, I know. So be quiet. That's the way he was. That's what he said. Then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Verse 9. When they have crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you? Before I'm taken away. This was his bold response. When he was asked, what can I give you? After all those times of washing the hands, all those times of washing the feet, all those times of serving and faithful and carrying his bags and, and doing what, what, what he, he needed to do to make the man above him successful. He asked, 
Let me inherit. By the way, all that little talk, everything you need to do to make the man above him successful, that is a major theme here. What are, what are you expected to do when you get to a seeker-driven church? You don't hold him accountable. He holds you accountable to the vision that he has. Your job is to serve him. And with all your grunt work serving, maybe then God will see that as you becoming worthy so that you can become a leader someday too and God gives you a vision and people will get behind your vision and stuff like that. That's what's going on in the subtext of this sermon. A double portion of your spirit. He didn't want this for himself. He wanted this so he could serve his country and serve his God. And verse 10 says, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah saw this and cried out. My father, father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elijah saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment. Elijah Elijah left his cloak behind, that mantle behind. It wasn't taken up with him. So, man, Elijah's looking up and seeing the one that he's followed and the one that he served being taken away. He says, Father, Father. And as, as, as he goes out of sight, he sees the cloak. He picks it up. And notice what he does. Verse 12. Elijah saw this and cried out, My father, my father the chariots and horsemen of Israel, and Elijah saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Took his cloak and his his garments and tore them. Elijah then picked up Elijah's cloak, verse 13, that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And then he struck the water again. And it says here, it divided to the right and to the left. And he crossed over. The prophet of God just did this. And he picked up the mission. He picked up the the symbol. And he picked up the authority. Struck the water and nothing stood in his way. Some things that I want to share with you in regards to this. First of all, fill in the blank. Elijah knew to what he was called. Elijah understood that he, he was called to a person. He was called to follow. And so when Elijah went to Jordan and he went to um, Bethel and he went to all these places and, and Elijah said, you just wait here, I'll be back. 
And what does this have to do again with Jesus' words, greater things you'll do than, yeah. Uh-huh. I said, no. I am not going to forsake you. I am with you all the way. I am not going to leave your sight. I'm here to serve you. And, and if you're going, I'm going. He understood that he was called to a man and that, that he was to follow. You and I are called to follow. We're not just called to have salvation. Okay, give me my ticket of salvation and then go live how we want to live. No, we have to understand what we're called to. You are called to Jesus, a person. I am called to follow Jesus and we are to be disciples of his. And we're to align our life with him and we are to go where he leads Because Jesus said to us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You know, something else that that I saw in this passage is that Elijah understood that God wants us and him. He He understood that God wants us to grow our faith. It is a journey of faith. Remember this, the sermon a couple weeks ago about digging ditches? Um, I've heard Stephen Furtick's version of it, and I'm still trying to scrub it out of my mind. But okay. See, these armies were dying of thirst and dehydration, and they came and sought the man of God. See, faith without works is dead. And, and what the man of God said... Let's make this valley ditches, full of ditches. And as they needed water, they were to prepare, prepare by digging ditches. And that digging of ditches was an act, a small step of believing God and acting on it. See, God wants to show himself faithful step by step. And as we take steps of faith, you believe God's called you to something. I believe God has called us to take this community with the gospel. I believe God has called us to build a great church here. I am believing and I'm taking the steps that God is going to build a great church here. Not just the people, but a building that will be a hospital. I'm taking the steps. A hospital, not for... Now, if, you, if you're all about preaching the gospel, at least that's what you say you are, why aren't you preaching it? For sickness, but a hospital for, for spiritual needs, a hospital to find Jesus, a hospital to, to get healthy in the Lord spiritually and, and supernaturally. I believe that we are the first remnant. We are the beginning of the army that God is creating, but we have got to step out in faith. We have got to give in faith, and we have got to... You're the beginning of an army God is creating? So what about all the other Christians in the world out there? What are they? Believe together as we lock arms and we go for it. We have a huge opportunity that's five weeks away. 
let me tell you about it, okay? Well, five weeks from today is Easter, March 31st. And you know what? There's a ton of people here in Lake Nona that's going to be looking for a church to go to this Easter. And this is one thing you know about me, right? If you know anything about me, you know that I am going to preach my guts out and that I'm going to share the gospel and we're going to love on people. Why aren't you preaching it now? It's going to be about the word. It's going to be about Jesus and his cross being lifted up. And it's going to be. Why don't you lift it up now? About loving on people and discipling people and building people up. And so as we are thinking about that and we're planning about that, we're going to start a new series next week. And let me tell you about that series. We're going to come along something that's happening on TV. All right. I know I've said from this pulpit that the TV is a devil. And I think most of the TV is. Uh, Starting next Sunday and for the following Sundays and every Sunday in the month of March, for two hours, every Sunday night on the History Channel, they are going to host stories from the Bible that tells in, in four weekends... I think it's five weekends, the story of the... In other words, he's preaching from Mark Burnett's and Roma Downey's The Bobble. Mm-hmm. The Bible. And guess where they're going to finish? They're going to finish on Easter night with the production of the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, and the resurrection. And guys, I think that if we can get the buzz out on Facebook and Twitter and whatever social things that you're involved in, if we could tell our, our, our neighbors and if we could tell our family members and build up the buzz and, and get excited about this, I am going to be preaching uh, a series that's going to come right along with it. That's going to be dealing with some of the issues uh, of, of what's going to be on TV that night. And so out in the lobby, I have, I have some packets that are put together that has invitations in it and that you could personally host a party at your house, inviting your, your neighbors, inviting folks that are not connected to a church and bring them into your house and say, let's, let's watch tonight together. Fix some popcorn. I mean, could you imagine? Give them some sweet tea. And say, as you're watching this, man, wasn't that good? I hear it's going to be done with great quality. And and as you tell them, man, isn't that good? You could also tell them, well, my church that meets at Lake Nona High School at 10 o'clock is doing a series alongside of this. You should come. You should check it out. We got this big, weird pastor that yells all the time. You should check it out. And very rarely, if you give an invitation to someone, inviting them to a church on Easter, will they say no? And if they say no, what, what will it hurt? If they're not going to still be your friend or, or, or they're going to talk bad about you as a neighbor because you invited them to church, 
they were probably talking bad about you anyway. If you're living for Christ the way you should be, right? You know, some people are just waiting for an invitation. Isn't that true? Who knows the greater thing that you could allow happen in someone's life because you cared enough to step out of your comfort zone, invite them to church or invite them to your house. Who knows? Who knows what God could do? See, in Hebrews eleven six, it says this, and without faith, it is what? It's impossible to please God. Would you consider stepping out in faith in the next several weeks to invite some friends, some family, some coworkers to church? If you, if you want to pursue this, don't, don't get the packet unless you're serious about pursuing them. I'll have some packets next week too, because we only have a limited number of packets. But if you'll do it, there's packets in the lobby. Just pick up one. See, what God did, fill in the last blank. God took this farmer that was every day He saw the back end of an ox for hours upon hours upon hours, the dust from the ground all over him. This country farmer boy. And he became the prophet of Israel that did incredible miracles. Do you know this about Elisha? After he died, they took a man's body who just recently died and, and laid it in his tomb where, where Elijah's body was, was decayed. And you know what happened? That man came back to life. It's in the Bible. Go check it out. But fill in the blank. Elijah received his greater thing. And you know what? I'm believing with you that you will receive your greater thing. If you'll have faith, if you'll take baby steps. So I can receive my greater things. So when people touch my grave, then they'll come to life too. And if you will do what Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Yeah, and it's talking about trusting Christ alone, not your works for salvation. That's what the whole thesis of Galatians is. To close your eyes and bow your heads. Okay, done, done. So there you go. That's an example of what Stephen Furtick's book, Greater, sounds like when it gets into you know the mainstream of evangelicalism. And what's the problem here is is that this now be, you know the John 14:12 then becomes the core verse for Christian sanctification and it's not that's not the core passage regarding Christian sanctification. You want to know what Christian sanctification is, a correct understanding of it, I'd recommend getting a good systematic theology and looking at all of the passages and how they rightly order them when it comes to Christian sanctification. 
and trusting God for a direct revelation to give you a unique and individual purpose so that you can do greater things, you'll find that uh, none of the uh, th- none of the good old systematic the- uh, theologies or dogmatics texts um, do that. Why? Because that's bad hermeneutics. That John fourteen twelve is not the core passage that describes our Christian faith. Nor do you take the stories of Elisha and somehow you know make them applications for your life. Because if you're consistent, you got to do that with all of the other prophets. And then I would just simply ask you: Have you married your prostitute? Have you cooked your bread over poop? You know things like that. And you realize what the problem is: is that that's not how God's word was supposed to be handled. This is narcissistic, Bible-twisting extraordinaire, and basically an ignoring of the clear passages that do outline and tell us what the Christian life is and what it looks like. And it doesn't look like you going off and doing some audacious thing by taking baby steps of faith to receive a direct revelation and then serve a, a leader so that you can become worthy then to become a leader yourself. It's not... The biblical Christian doctrine of sanctification. That's something completely different. And it takes your eyes off of Christ and him crucified for your sins. What a mess. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>